so Matthew 6, 1 through 4, that's what we're going to read this morning. That's where we'll be most of our time this morning. And before we do this, I want to ask a question. I want to see a show of hands. I didn't plan on doing this, but I'm the youth pastor and we do weird things. So if you are a rule follower in this room, if, you, if your tendency is to always play by the book, to do the right thing, um, for whatever reason, if you're a rule follower, I want to see a show of hands. That's you. Okay. That's a lot of you. Okay. So on the flip side, I want to ask if you are in here and you want to know the rules just so you can break them and you are always pushing the limits, I want to see your hands raised. It's okay. This is a safe place. Okay, much less of you. You guys are just scared. Uh, There's more of you. I know there is. But that was probably like a 60-40 split. Uh, And so um, I asked that because this morning uh, in our text, Jesus is going to specifically address the rule followers among us. And there's going to be something for all of us, I promise. But uh, specifically for those of us in here who uh, like to play uh, by the book. And so I'll explain why here in a few moments. But let's read right now. It'll be on the screens here as well. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you uh, that it speaks to every aspect of our life. And I pray that you would send your spirit to, to be present with us this morning, that you would um, call out the sin in our lives and, and not allow us to stay where we are. And so I pray that this morning you would be honored among us, and we would seek to draw closer to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I grew up attending church with my family and my dad would often go early uh, every week to hand out bulletins and open the door for people as they arrived. Very small country church. And uh, I considered it an an honor to go with him and also hand out bulletins and hold the door open, mostly for old ladies as they were coming in. It was just a whole lot of fun for me as a kid. Uh, But whether we we were serving or not, we were sure to be there by the time Sunday school started every single week. We did not miss Sunday school. And I remember specifically one Sunday morning, I was in my Sunday school class, and I was probably around third or fourth grade at the time, that my, my teacher had just finished uh, the lesson. He was a local farmer, uh, finished his lesson and said that it was time to pray. So we bow our heads. He begins to pray. And as he does this, I notice my friend across the table begins looking around the room. And it wasn't like she was like peeking a little bit and then like putting her head back. Like she was gawking all over the place with, and she wasn't paying attention to the, to the teacher praying. And what an atrocity, right? Like I, I could not stand for this. So I closed my eyes and thought, this is just so disrespectful. So I closed my eyes. And as soon as my teacher says, amen, my hand shoots up and I, I'm shouting, hey, teacher, she had her eyes open during the prayer. And what he said next began what would become for me a lifelong journey of the the realization of my own legalistic heart and self-righteous spirit. He said, how did you know her eyes were open? (laughs) And at that moment, I knew I was caught. You see, I was so fixed on my friend breaking the 11th commandment that I created in my mind 
thou shalt not open thine eyes during the prayer, that I was oblivious to the reality that I had broken it myself. What I ultimately wanted to accomplish in that moment was to show how righteous I was by showing how unrighteous someone else was. And in the process, I broke my own law. Now, since that day, I've realized many other ways that my legalistic and self-righteous tendencies expose me to the truth that my motives don't often match what I say I believe. I still internally find faults in others in order to feel better about my own weaknesses. I hold others to a higher standard of righteousness and holiness than I hold myself to. I find myself doing certain things so that others would think more highly of me. Now, if you're at all like me, I'm so glad I had you raise your hands at the start so I know that I'm not alone. There are many of you in here that you are like me. The sad reality for us is that we can have greater legalistic tendencies and self-righteous behaviors after Jesus has saved us from our sin. And when we realize this, we can run in one of two directions. We can become overcome with guilt and shame that even though Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, we live as if we have earned that grace for ourselves or that we need to earn it moving forward. Or we can keep running to Jesus in desperate need of his grace in the same way that we did when we first believed, repenting of our legalism and our self-righteousness. Now this morning, we're gonna look at Matthew 6, one through four in two primary sections. First, we're gonna look at how verse one is setting up verses two through 18. There's three sections that follow and it's set up by verse one and I'll explain that in a moment. And then we'll look specifically at how giving to the needy and how uh, we can do so in a way that honors both God and our neighbor. Now, I thought Jeremy did a really good job last week of wrapping up our previous section in chapter five. For several weeks now, as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen how Jesus is upending the way people think and he raises the expectation on what true righteousness looks like. Last week specifically, we looked at how followers of Jesus should not only not seek justice for themselves when they are wronged, but they should also expect to move toward and step into further potential harm in order to show our enemies that we love them. And here in chapter six, we encounter a slight shift here in the Sermon on the Mount. So from verses 21 of chapter five through the end of the chapter, Jesus is addressing what people believe their thinking, right thinking. Beginning in Matthew 6, 1, we see a shift to what people do, how they behave. And so right beliefs lead to an inner righteousness and right actions display an external righteousness. So let's start in verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. This idea of your righteousness uh, is something that Jesus has just addressed in Matthew 5.20. So it would have just been a few minutes prior to what he's saying here in chapter six in this sermon. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I can only imagine how incredibly disheartening this statement would have been for his hearers because the scribes and the Pharisees were externally very righteous people. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you are not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Over and over though, throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites as he does here in verse two. So what is a hypocrite? I know you've heard this term. Maybe someone has called you a hypocrite. Um, what, what we, <laughs> I, hope, I hope not, but maybe. I think we, we, were all there, uh, we are all there someday. Um, But what a hypocrite means for us today is just somebody who says one thing 
and does another, another thing. <clears throat> Originally, a hypocrite came to be known as a Greek actor who wore a mask in order to play a role in a play. It later became uh, known as someone, let's see, where do I have it here? Uh, it came to be used for those who play roles and they see the world as their stage. And this described the religious leaders of the day. In Matthew 23, Jesus turns up the heat on the scribes and Pharisees. He puts them on full blast, starting in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. In a, comment, in a commentary he wrote, David Platt unpacks it like this. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was purely external. But Jesus says that it's not enough to be righteous on the outside, as we've read, if you are not also righteous on the inside. What Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. He is not saying that you must have a quantitatively greater righteousness, something like a righteousness that is numerically greater than the scribes and Pharisees. It's not as if there's a holiness test and the Pharisees have scored in the low 90s on this thing and you've gotta get like a 95 or a 96 in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Jesus is talking about a qualitatively different righteousness, one that is a different kind altogether. This is not an outer righteousness to show everyone how good we look, but an inner righteousness that shows how gracious and how powerful God is. Jesus spoke of this inner righteousness with Nicodemus in John 3. The idea in John 3 of being born again is precisely what he's getting at in Matthew 5.20, when he says that our righteousness must be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We must have a righteousness that extends beyond external and legal conformity, and such an exceeding righteousness is only possible by God's gift of a new heart. So what the Pharisees needed in this time and what you and I need today is not more righteous deeds by our own effort, but more righteous hearts by God's grace. Jesus gives us another picture of this in Luke 18. So he told them a parable. He told them a story of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector stood far off. He could not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, he will be exalted. Now friends, this is a really helpful warning for us this morning. And it's worth asking in light of all this, how do you view yourself? Particularly in relation to both God and to others. Do you still see yourself as someone who is in desperate need of Jesus? Do you act or do you behave as someone who is in desperate need of Jesus? Do you walk by the Spirit and do you ask Him to produce fruit in you? Or do you live in such a way that says, I appreciate you, Jesus, thank you for saving me, but I've got it from here? Now, I know we would never say that, 
right? We would never say that. But externally, do you live in such a way that says, I've got this, I've got this. We had a conversation uh, over Matthew 6 with the youth on Wednesday night, and, I, and one of the girls brought up a really good question. I could tell like the gears are working in her mind. It was, it was a pretty cool moment. And she says, so God doesn't want us to do things so that others would see us, but he does want us to practice our righteousness. So how do we do that without being seen? Oh, that was a great question. And we have to be careful not to go in the far opposite direction and say, I'm only gonna practice my righteousness when nobody is around. And we know that's not the case because earlier in Matthew 5, he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And he says, let your light shine before others so that they see your good deeds and give glory to God. So what seems to be a contradiction is simply a tension that we must hold in check. Do you live to glorify God or do you live in order that others would see you and praise you and think more highly of you? Here's the hard thing for the Pharisee or the legalist, uh, the rule follower among us, myself included. Here's the problem. You can't earn your way out of this cycle. And that's the first step that you want to take, right? You say, okay, so I get it. I live for the praise of others. What is the next step? Tell me what to do, right? Again, Jesus is not demanding more righteous effort, not more righteous deeds by our own effort but he's, he's demanding more righteous hearts by divine grace. Again, from John three, this is really confusing to Nicodemus when he's talking about being born again, having this new, new heart, new life. It got even more confusing in John six, when Jesus told the Jews, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Can you imagine hearing that for the first time? If you wanna experience true life and divine grace, then you must believe in him, namely in his dying on the cross for sinners and his shedding of blood, that would ultimately satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus took on flesh that he would be the perfect sacrifice for you and me to put us back into right relationship with the Father. Now, you know, we don't literally eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. But what we do is stake our lives on his work for us on the cross and his payment for our sin. When we practice our righteousness, we do so with this as the foundation but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's Romans 5. So each of the acts of piety that come after this in Matthew 6, 2 through 4, he, he mentions um, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. He didn't have to explain to the people in this time that they needed to do these things. They were already doing these things, but he did have to come and correct the way in which they were doing them. So why did he have to do that? Because since sin entered into the world, we have a natural bent towards the fear of man. What does everyone else think about me? What do you guys think about me right now? We think about these things. And we don't need to look very far to see that that's as true today as it's ever been. How many of you guys have social media? Anytime you open your social media app, you can be confronted with this reality. The most powerful and the most praised people in our day today have the greatest followers on social media, right? They get the most likes, the most clicks, the most retweets. And even though you and I don't have millions of followers, at least I don't think any of you in here do, um, anybody have a million followers on any of these sites? No? Okay. We're all in the same boat. We can still have this temptation 
to pursue likes, clicks, and retweets, can't we? Social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter aren't evil in and of themselves, even though we may at times feel like they are. They are just forms of communication. But what they do is they give a megaphone and a microscope to anybody who wants it. And that's kind of scary, right? On a worldwide scale, anybody can have a megaphone and a microscope. And there's this temptation for Christians to use these sites, use these platforms to promote a false sense of piety. Now, I'm not saying that I saw any of you do these things this week. I just wanna give a few examples. So please know that I'm not talking about anyone specifically in this room, if you've done this, or that I'm questioning your motives. I do wanna give a few examples though. We can be tempted to, to maybe post a picture of ourselves on a mission trip, playing with some small kids, or um, post a picture of a coffee, coffee cup next to our open Bible, or next uh, post uh, inspirational quotes or verses that we have just read. We can do these things in such a way that, that we desire other people to look at us and say, man, they are so godly. Like how awesome is this person? What an awesome quote. They just, where did they come up with that? Like we can do this in a way that draws people to look at us. Now, here's the scary part, guys. Jesus tells us that when we do this, we receive exactly what we want. You want to be seen by others. You want to be praised by others. You want people to think that you are really awesome. You will get that, but that is the only thing you will get. So what you're doing is forfeiting rewards from the Father in order that you would be praised by someone in this room or somebody in your family or somebody that you know. And we have to ask, is that really worth it? Is it worth it? So here are some questions to ask whether or not you might be walking in legalism this morning. First, why are you here? Like what? What got you out of bed and like what, what did you come here hoping to receive this morning? Did you hope to impress someone? Did you hope to impress God? Did you hope to impress maybe yourself? When you feel guilt and shame, where does your guilt come from? Why do you feel guilty? Are you trying to earn for yourself what Jesus has already bought? Do you feel more or less free after doing something? Uh, one pastor out of Arizona writes this. What I've learned about rule followers is that we don't know how to feel anything but guilt. Most of us don't know what freedom looks like and because of that, we don't pursue it. So we talk a lot about freedom and joy in Jesus in here, experiencing freedom and joy in Jesus here at Providence Road. Do you, would you say that your life is characterized as someone who experiences freedom and joy in Jesus on a regular, consistent basis? Now, if you're here this morning and you would admit that this is you, I'm not gonna have you raise your hands now, that your natural inclination is to try harder and to do better out of your own effort, my guess is that you don't like living that way. That you don't, like there's not joy in that. And most likely you're prone to beat yourself up over the way in which you are living. So one of my favorite musicians is, is Andrew Peterson. If you're, if you're unfamiliar with him, I would encourage you to check him out. He wrote a song a few years ago for his 13-year-old daughter, and it's called Be Kind to Yourself. It was birthed out of, of a tension in his own heart that he was having a hard time believing that God loves him and that a confession uh, that, he, that he made that he can be angrier at himself uh, more than any other person in the world. 
And so he, he noticed his daughter start to take on some of these, these same tendencies. And so she would become angry over uh, something that's legitimate. And then she would start to become upset over becoming upset. And so it became this vicious cycle for her. And he called it like uh, a snake eating its own tail. So be kind to yourself as a helpful response to the critic within all of us. I'm gonna read it for us this morning. You've got all that emotion that's heaving like an ocean and you're drowning in a deep, dark well. I can hear it in your voice that if you only had a choice, you would rather be anyone else. I love you just the way that you are. I love the way that he made your precious heart. Be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself. I know it's hard to hear it when that anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your chest. When the voices in your mind are anything but kind and you can't believe your father knows best. I love you just the way that you are. I love the way he's shaping your heart. Be kind to yourself. How does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? You gotta learn to love your enemies too. You can't expect to be perfect. It's a fight you've got to forfeit. You belong to me, whatever you do. So lay down your weapon, take a deep breath and believe that I love you. Be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself. You've got to learn to love your enemies too. In a day when it's never been easier to broadcast our own righteousness or to compare ourselves and our lives to others, the way of Jesus is better. May we serve and worship God in humility. And when we realize that our motives don't match up to our beliefs, let us be quick to repent and to forgive ourselves. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And friends, he died for you that you might have life and have it to the full. Not just someday way back when, when you first believed in Jesus, but today and every other day too. So be kind to yourself. Understanding this is so important and it's elemental to our faith because it affects every relationship that we have. Now, this is gonna feel kind of like a hard shift. We're gonna move into to care for the poor. And that's what we see in verses two through four. As we've seen to this point, there is a way in which we are to not practice our righteousness. However, there is a way in which we ought to practice our righteousness, specifically in regards to care for the, for the poor. So our friends over at, at Frontline Church in OKC, um, they put together a series of videos that's been prompted um, by the Sermon on the Mount. And in one of those videos, David Adair, he's our lead pastor up in Edmond, sits down with John Bob Simple, who is the community uh, engagement director for Restore, I'm sorry, Regional Food Bank in OKC. And uh, through the Regional Food Bank, they serve around 130,000 people in poverty every single week. And so they sit down and have this conversation. They discuss caring for the poor. And I just wanna say at the onset here that most of what I've been thinking on this past couple weeks uh, is birthed out of this conversation itself. So it's either directly or indirectly affected by that conversation that they had. So for one reason or another, I think the average church member among us uh, is not known for care and giving to the poor. And I think that's not just true of, of Providence Road. I think we could broaden that to like the greater Norman area and also the OKC Metro that for whatever reason, um, Christians in this region are not known specifically for giving to the poor. And so I wanna ask just for us in this room for Providence Road, uh, why might, might that be? Why are we not known for caring for the poor and the marginalized and the needy among us? One reason I think is because we can exempt ourselves. Either I, I tithe to my church and so it's the church's responsibility or maybe you're, you're big government. So I, I give to the government and so it's their responsibility. Uh, so we so ex exempt ourselves. Another right reason might be is that we don't see them as people. 
May we see them more as, as projects or we look past them. And anytime we see people as a project rather than an image bearer of God, we don't see them for who they really are, uh, that they've been created in the image of God. Another reason, and I think this is probably the biggest one for us is this idea of toxic charity. Like we fear uh, that we might perpetuate their situation. And so many of you in this room have either heard of or read When Helping Hurts, and they talk a lot about that in there. So if I give this person cash every time I see them, I'm only gonna further their uh, situation. And also I'm communicating to them that I think their only need or maybe their greatest need is cash. And how many people, like even amongst us, like how many people do you, do you walk by and they're kind of having a hard day, you like just hand them money? Like you, you don't do that. You talk to them, you hear their story, you ask them how their week was, you ask them how they're doing. And so we fear that if we can't do this for the poor and the marginalized among us, that if either I can't give them the time and attention they need, or if I can't sit down and listen to them, or if I can't give to them in the right way, then I'm just not gonna give it all. And so here's what is frustrating about what Jesus says. He doesn't mention any of these reasons in Matthew 6. In fact, he, he says it so casually that twice he says, when you give to the needy, do it this way. It's kind of like in Genesis 1.1. We read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No mention of arguments for or against creation, no arguments for or against the existence of God, and no help for us as believers, for people who would one day refute whether or not this actually happened. He just says, God created, and that's it, and that was enough. So here in Matthew 6, it's the same thing. We're gonna see it the next two weeks in prayer and fasting. He just says, when you give to the needy, don't talk about it with anyone, not even your left hand. Okay, so is that helpful? Maybe, I don't know. Well, let's go a little further. We must get to a place where we see those who are poor and marginalized among us. They are here in Norman, in Cleveland County. So how do we do that? I think first we have to repent. I think of two things. One, that we don't see them or that maybe we, we try to avoid them. Like we maybe know where certain pockets of people are who are poor and marginalized and we avoid them. But I think the second aspect of, aspect of that is that we can just be really greedy. I think if you look over the, the history of the world, I don't have numbers or statistics, maybe some of you do, but we, we are some of the richest people in the history of the world. And you may not think so, I don't know what you make, I know what I make, but if you look at the, the history of the world, and how we compare in relation to most people. We are some of the richest people the world has ever known. And yet we can be so greedy. We need to repent of that first. Next, I think we look for people in our life who, who are already uh, in our spheres of influence, in our circles, maybe th through work or your friends, your neighbors, that, that need help today. How can you step into their life? Who do you already have relationship with that you can serve or that you can give to? I think another thing we, we have to realize is that we need to walk in humility. Like we're, we're gonna screw up. Uh, I, I, I picture this like a, a baby learning to walk if, if we haven't been doing this, but, but we cheer our kids on when they're learning to walk, right? Like when they stumble or they bump their head or you know, they're kind of wobbling their legs, like we cheer them on, right? If you're moving towards pursuing a life of generosity and you're moving towards engaging the poor so that you can care for them long-term, it's gonna be awkward and you're gonna say some really dumb things, but walk in humility. You're moving forward in the right direction. And so you may say uh, even further that like, maybe you don't know where people are 
that are poor and marginalized, that, that you don't know where to go to begin. And that's one reason we had Vicki mention the 405 Center. Uh, that's why we formed this partnership with the 405 Center about a year ago. And again, if you're not familiar with them, they are a nonprofit that connects local churches with lo- local nonprofits who are already doing great things. So we as a church kind of got together, uh, some, of, some of the leadership, and we said, here are some things we would love to do. We would love to step into the lives of women who are in crisis pregnancy situations. We would love to care for some of the, the homeless and the poor um, around us. We would love to step into the lives of, of kids who don't have dads, who don't have moms. Uh, and so we wanna do all these things, but where in the world do we start? And that's where the 405 Center comes in and says, there are nonprofits already doing so many good things. And so they have linked arms uh, between us and these nonprofits and said, they need people, go serve. And so uh, I feel pretty confident in speaking for the leadership here that we would love for you to give, but primarily in the context of relationships. And so first, maybe you just need to start serving. So find one of these organizations, again, we've got it open in the back, find one of these organizations where you can go to and you can consistently serve develop relationships with them. Go to the Eden Clinic and meet moms who are in really hard situations. Uh, Go to after school programs and start mentoring middle school boys that don't have a dad. Uh, Go to food and shelter, start serving food to people on a regular basis. I think they serve, is it three meals a day, I think, every day of the year? Uh, Just jump in and start serving. And as you build relationships and you hear about needs amongst these people, give, give freely, give openly. Saving for your, college kid, your kid's college fund is wise. Setting aside money for the future is wise. So is getting out of debt. Maybe that needs to be your first step this morning, that you just need to attack ferociously your debt, your college loans, your high interest credit card loans, car, car loans, whatever it is. Maybe you aggressively go after those things so that you can pursue a life of generosity. In doing so, because God has been so open-handed and generous with us. And here's the reality. Everything you own, like I'm gonna do the air quotes, everything you think you own is not really yours anyways. Your house, your car, like whatever you consider to be physically valuable to you, it is all God's. And we just get to play with it for a few years, right? Like we just get to have some fun with it. In the grand scope of eternity, we are here for such a short time and we get to steward our resources for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. So let's move towards that. Let's move towards that. Because of what Jesus has done for us, Christians ought to be the most generous people on the planet, whether you have a lot of money or not. So not like the billionaire or millionaires who have all this extra cash or not the the people who love serving at a bunch of nonprofits for the sake of humanitarian aid. It ought to be Christians who have been saved by the blood of Jesus and redeemed in him. We ought to be the most generous people the world has ever known. I wanna leave you with the best way that, that I've seen someone give uh, without their left hand knowing what their right hand is doing. Um, as many of you know, um, last fall, we had an unexpected funeral to plan for our son and a pastor from another state had heard about our story and we had some connections with him through his church here at Providence Road and, and I bumped into him at an event and um, he shared with me how sorry he was that we were walking through what we were and um, that, he, that he loves us. And then he just pulls out this wad of cash. Like I didn't count it in front of him, but he just pulls out just a bunch of money. He handed it to me and he said, we want you to use this for, for the funeral, for hospital expenses, for, for whatever you need. You take this and you use it. And I, I began immediately saying, 
just thank you so much. I expressed my gratitude. And he shut me down almost immediately. And he said, you, you are not gonna thank me. Don't thank me. This actually isn't, isn't from me. That they just had a guy in their church that periodically would give him money. And he told him that as you see needs arise, you go give this out to people. And so this pastor told me that he just got to be Santa Claus with somebody else's stuff. So some guy who I still don't know, he gave us $500 to help us in a time of extreme grief for us. And that same guy is probably giving away money to single moms, to those in need of a warm meal, to those whose car has broken down, and he has no idea where his money is going. I'm prone to assume that this man is well off, but I have no idea if that's the case. What I know is that this man is open-handed with his stuff, that he's giving to those in need and he doesn't even know where his money's going. And ultimately, he is reflecting the generosity of Jesus to people he is never going to meet. Now, last fall, we had a lot of things we were unprepared for, a lot of things that were happening. And, and many of you especially came around us and you gave and you helped us in that time. May we be people that are known for that, that, we, that are known for that kind of generosity. And not just for those who are in our, in our midst, but also for those who, who are the poor and the marginalized in our community. So someday that man is going to stand before Jesus and he's gonna say to him, and I pray that he says to us as well, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Let us pursue righteous hearts by the divine grace of Jesus. May we be a people who care little about notoriety for ourselves, but cares much about the poor and the marginalized among us. May we have a holy forgetfulness about us that doesn't keep track of our own righteous deeds, but instead looks for new and habitual ways to care for the least of these because of the new life that we have received in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you call us to serve you, that we get to be a part of your work here. And I pray that this morning that you would set us free from feeling like we have to earn your grace and your love. Jesus died that we might have new life in you, that we would be justified in you, but also the, the further growth in the Christian life, the sanctification has also been purchased for us by Jesus. And so may we serve you, may we love you out of this love that we've already been given and we've already received. Help us to believe this today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, like every other morning, we're gonna take communion. And the night before Jesus went to the cross, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. And he took the cup and he held it before his followers and he said, this is my blood, which is gonna be shed for you. So here in a few moments, we're gonna ask that you come forward and, and you partake of the Lord's Supper. And, and before that, we're gonna give you a time to reflect. And I, I want you in the room that are, that are rule followers, that, that you're like me, to just sit for a moment and 
remind yourself the gospel and believe it and just sit there for a moment. And that's okay. Not think about like what you have to do or like what you have to earn or who's looking at you. Just sit for a moment and believe that Jesus died for you. If you're in this room this morning and maybe you would say, I've never experienced any of this and this is all new. I would say, you know, what is, what is keeping you from believing this, from believing in Jesus and walking by faith in this? You can believe and you can follow Jesus this morning. And if you do, we'd ask that you come forward and you can take communion maybe for the first time. But if that's not you and you're saying, I'm still wrestling with this, I'm still, I'm still not there. We'd say, just take a moment in your seat and just pray and reflect uh, there where you are this morning. But for everybody else in the room, take a few moments, recite the gospel to yourself, believe it, and then come forward and take communion.